and I am excited. I'm revved up about this series. Uh, I'm revved up. I'm not just revved up about this series because I don't believe it's just a series. I believe it's a season. God's taking us into a season where we're building hope. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody um, this past week. He's a Teen Challenge graduate. He graduated from, uh, from Fort Myers Teen Challenge. And, um, but he's a, a Baltimore native, and his parents kind of kicked him out, said, we don't want you anywhere around Baltimore. And so they sent him down to Fort Myers Teen Challenge. And, and he's just, uh, he graduated um, five years ago. And now he's a youth pastor on staff at a church. And we were talking about Baltimore. And he said, he said, one of the things that I love about Baltimore is that every park bench you see has written on it, the greatest city in America. And he was kind of, you know, laughing about it and stuff. And, and I, I was telling him about one of the, one of the, I think saddest yet most inspirational scenes I've ever seen um, since I've been in Baltimore. And that was as I was walking down um, Eastern Avenue, I looked at one of the park benches that said the greatest city in America. And I saw a guy that was passed out from drugs. And, And as I was looking at kind of the contrast between one of the things that makes Baltimore such an awful city But yet I felt like it was a prophecy from the Lord written above this guy. Because it's only through eyes of faith that you see that Baltimore is the greatest city in America. It's only through eyes of faith. But I'm telling you, the reason I'm here in Baltimore is because I believe that Baltimore is the greatest city in America. I believe that we're going to see a city that our city council members have said, it just, it seems hopeless. It feels hopeless. I don't know what the solutions are. When we hear people say things like that, I believe it takes an act of God to turn a hopeless city into a hope city. But I believe that's what God has in store for this city. I believe he's building hope right here, right now. So as we're talking about um, building hope, I just want you to, I want you, come on. I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to touch somebody next to you and say, God is up to something. Now, don't get too close because it's early and this is still kind of a hot zone. So, you know, look to the side if you need to. But just, you know, don't breathe on anybody too close. You hadn't had breakfast yet. It's all right. So we're talking on this subject of building hope. And here's the truth. Hope is the core of our faith. Without hope, what do we have? See, because hope is what gives birth to faith. Hope is the seed that faith grows out of. If you don't have hope, you don't have anything. You have to have hope. And so so when we look at what we see in this city and we look at how hopeless things appear to be, I want you to know that no matter what the life situation, no matter what things look like on the outside, there is hope because there is Jesus. You see, because even even if you go to the cross and you look at the cross, it looked like a very bad day for the disciples and Jesus. Can you imagine how devastating it must have been for Jesus' disciples to watch him get beaten, to watch him get nailed to a cross, 
and to watch him die. Is that anything to build hope on? But they hear the voice of Jesus. Hey, I'm only going to be dead three days. I'm only going to be dead three days. And even though it looked dark, even though they kind of dispersed, even though they began to hide, there was a little seedbed of hope in there. And that seedbed of hope turned to rejoicing when they showed up in an empty tomb. Because that changed everything. That changed everything. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah as we talk about what God is building right here in Baltimore. Back in October, I preached one message on, uh, from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4 is what I, I preached from last time. I'm going to talk from Nehemiah 6 today. And I'm, going to, I'm kind of jumping in the middle of the book because, honestly, it's just what's on my heart. And then later, we're going to kind of unpack some other pieces of the book. But the first message that I preached back in October, I called it Building and Battling. Building and Battling. Because, see, what had happened um, at this point, uh, the Israelites have been in captivity in Babylon for about 70 years. And it's interesting because our last sermon series, Doomed to Repeat, the Israelites were just coming out of captivity in Egypt, right? After 400 years of slavery. Now they're coming out of captivity in Babylon after 70 years of being um, dispersed to this land. And so what we see is that this pattern of sin that the Israelites found themselves in is directly related to what caused them to end up in slavery again. It wasn't sin that led them into slavery the first time, but it was their sin that led them into slavery the second time. So it's this, it's this captivity. And so up to this point, they had been taken captive by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar takes them away. And they started with this first kind of um, band of exiles that were taken into captivity. and started with some people that you've heard of. Daniel, right? You know the story of Daniel and the lion's den. He was one of the original exiles because they went after the best and the brightest first. Daniel was in that category. And then there were these other Hebrew boys called Hananiah. Mishael and Azariah, and you know them better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? The three Hebrew children that were thrown in the fiery furnace. And so these guys were kind of caught up and taken in that first band with David or with Daniel. And as they are taken into exile, the goal was, hey, let's influence the best and the brightest first, then we'll bring another wave of people. And then they will kind of help share the message of Babylon, how great and awesome we are. And they'll be able to influence and infiltrate the next wave. And so there won't be problems in the next wave because we've already got the smartest and best looking here. And they'll influence everyone else. And so there were kind of these three waves of migration out of Israel and into the land of Babylon. Well, while they were there in Babylon during the 70-year period, there was another kingdom that rose up the Persian kingdom, modern day Iran, and they kind of swept in and took over from the Babylonians and they conquered the Babylonian civilization. And now the Persians are in power and there's a king in, ba in Persia named Artaxerxes. Isn't that a great name? Anybody have children named Artaxerxes? No? Okay. So it's one of those things. You're probably not going to find a lot of people named Artaxerxes, but this is the guy. And, and during this time, there is a guy named Nehemiah, and his job is to be the cupbearer to the king. Now, does anybody know, like, cupbearer, there's not a lot of people, you know, you don't 
take the little vocational test at school and they're like, hey, you'd be a great plumber and I think you'd be a great architect and you'd be an awesome cupbearer. It's not one of those that we really hear a lot about. So what is a cupbearer? The cupbearer's job, he was kind of the, the personal butler to the king. And he stayed with the king all the time. And any time that the king was brought food or drink, the cupbearer's job was to taste it first to see if he died. It's a good job, right? Um, so, so literally, if everything's going well, it's a great gig. If, if it's not going well, it's really not going well. Um, so, so Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. And so this is kind of where we find him. And it, literally all he does is eat and drink in the presence of the king. Now, flip over here to Nehemiah chapter 6. I want to look at verses 1 in the first part of 2. Um, it says, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanbalat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. I'm not even going to preach on that, but I could preach on Ono, right? So, um, so, so look at what happen, what's happening here. So Nehemiah has heard that the city of Jerusalem is in ruin. It's been destroyed. When the Babylonians came in, they purposely destroyed everything. Matter of fact, they set the temple on fire so that it would burn. The Bible says that the, the, the gold from Solomon's temple actually ran down into the streets like a river. There was so much gold, and the molten gold just kind of spilled out and caked everywhere. And then the Babylonians chipped it up and took it away with them, and that was part of how they looted Jerusalem. Unbelievably wealthy city in Jerusalem. And the walls were knocked down as kind of a way to demonstrate power. They totally tore them up, and all that's left is just kind of this footprint and these broken down walls, and they had been burned and singed and knocked up, and they, they just, it was in bad shape. And so... Nehemiah has heard word that, hey, the city of Jerusalem is in ruin and you need to, we need to do something about it. It's dishonoring to God. It's dishonoring to the people of God. And so we want to see God do something. And so Nehemiah goes and he begins this work on the wall. And as he gets there, it's, it's, uh, it's so cool because you see Nehemiah just start working. He, he moved to do this work because there was a hope planted in his heart by God. He saw that this was a great city. He knew that Jerusalem was a great city, but it was in ruins. How many of you see a similarity between Baltimore? Baltimore is a great city, but it lies in ruins. It is broken. It's been beat up. There have been people that have done stupid things. There's been all kinds of evil that has been allowed to run rampant through our city. And the walls are broken down. But God has a plan to rebuild. From the moment that Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, he faced opposition. Every step he took. Can I tell you a secret? Any time that God gives you assignment to build something, you will have people that rise up and try to stop you. It's going to happen. The reason that the people want to tear down what God is building through you is because they've never built anything themselves. 
The reason that people want to criticize you is because it costs them nothing. It doesn't cost you anything to criticize. And if they can tear down what God is building through you, then they won't feel so bad about them. Stop listening to the critics. Stop listening to the critics. Criticism is cheap. Don't fall into the trap. Be a builder, not a critic. Let's read the second part of verse 2. It says, but I realized they were plotting to harm me. Notice what Sambalat says. He sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages. So that's the, that's the, the, uh, the gauntlet that's thrown down. And he says, so I, I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come meet you? You see... Nehemiah sees through the scheme, doesn't he? He sees that Sambalat is not interested in having a conversation. Sambalat is interested in stopping the work. And so Nehemiah doesn't even come down to talk to him. Nehemiah sends a messenger to go tell him something. He says, I'm not coming off the wall because I'm on a great work. Don't come off the wall. Do not come off the wall. No matter what gossip is flying about you, don't come off the wall. No matter what people are criticizing you, do not come off the wall. What is, what is Nehemiah's profession, by the way? He's a cupbearer. Did he go to vocational school? Do we read anywhere that he was a stonemason? Do we read anywhere that he was an architect? Do we read anywhere that he was an engineer? No. We read that he was a cupbearer. This is so significant to this message. Because God did not give him a skill set that equated with his calling. Sometimes your anointing does not match your skill set. But you can do more if you're operating in your anointing than you can if you're operating in your skills. God wants you to operate in your anointing. Sometimes we get so focused on our capabilities that we miss our calling. God is calling us to a great work in this city. He didn't just call me. He called us. He called us. Somebody poke your neighbor, say, he called us. Your skills might not look like they fit, but you just might find yourself building when you think you're only qualified for sipping. Amen? You may not be qualified for what you're anointed for, but you can do more with your anointing than you can accomplish with your skills. Flip over to Nehemiah chapter 2. I want to look at one other thing here because this is cool. Because his skill set positioned him for his purpose. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 says, Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, not the month of Honda, that's a different one, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, 
I was serving the king as wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Here's the cool thing about Nehemiah. He was discouraged about his city. He was depressed about it, but he didn't let it stop him. He still found himself engaged in what he was responsible for. Can I tell you, sometimes depression and frustration will keep you from doing what you're supposed to do. You cannot let it stop you. If you're depressed, go to work depressed. And do your job better than anybody else does their job. I'm not asking you to fake anything. Matter of fact, I am so tired of fake Christians walking around like everything's okay and their poo don't stink. Let me tell you something. It is bad some days. And it's okay to struggle. But do your job while you're struggling. And bring somebody in. Tell Especially if somebody asks, like the king asks. What does Nehemiah say? He doesn't say, I'm okay, I'm good. No, he recognizes that this is somebody that can help him. See, God positioned him for his purpose. God said, I've got an assignment for Nehemiah. And while it doesn't look like he's doing anything toward his goal, he's being faithful. And I've called you to be faithful first, and then I will unpack the promises for your life. See, this is the thing. We've got people all over the Christian world, and they're looking for opportunities. They're looking to do big things. They're looking to do great things, but they won't be faithful in the small things. And the Bible says that if you're not faithful in the small things, then God won't make you a ruler over much. But if you're faithful in the small things, God will make you a ruler over big things. So you be determined, you be engaged, you be focused, you be diligent. You work harder than anybody else around you works. You do what nobody else will do. You roll up your sleeves when everybody else wants to sit back and you be faithful in the small things. I remember one time when, we were probably only been here about seven or eight months and, and, um, we had just built the bathrooms in the front and, and, um, <clears throat> we had to install this big sewage ejector pump. <clears throat> and so it's this big, deep pit, it's about five feet deep. And it's got this big pump with a grinder in it and all the sewage dumps into the pit. I know there's way more information than you want to know. Um, And then when it starts to fill up, it will shoot it all up over your head and run right down this this ceiling all the way to the back of the building where it drains into our main stack. Aren't you glad you know that? Aren't you glad you know that? We used to have ceiling fans in here a long time ago, and I said, man, I hope that pipe never breaks because then the poop will really hit the fan. That's two poops in one Sunday. 
You guys, come on. This is fun. And so I remember though one Sunday, it was, we were like the second song into worship. And I don't remember who it was, but somebody come up to me and said, Pastor, the sewage ejector pit is overflowing. It's all over the women's bathroom. It's, all, it's going out into the foyer. It's starting to leak under the wall. What do we do? And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> and so I'm not a plumber. And so I, I walked out there and it's sure enough, it's just all bubbling up. And so I know a little bit about plumbing stuff. And so I walked in there. I took my, my top shirt off, left my T-shirt on. Okay, everybody, okay, don't get that image. I left my T-shirt on. I opened the pump, the pump lid. Who was with me when I did that? I think somebody here was with me when we did that. Okay, maybe it was Jason. But anyway, I lifted the lid off that thing, and I reached my hand down in there and started flipping that float around trying to get this thing to work. And the guy looks at me that was with me and he says, Pastor, why are you doing that? And I said, did you want to do it? It didn't fix it. I went in the bathroom and I scrubbed and I scrubbed. And then I went around into the breaker box and I noticed that someone had accidentally flipped the breaker off. And I flipped that breaker on and it all ejected right out and everything was fine. But here's the, here's the thing. There'll be assignments that you need to do that nobody else wants to do. And if you're faithful in the small things, God will make you a ruler over much. It doesn't matter how crappy the assignment is. You see what I did there? I'm just going to keep going with this all day long, all day long. It doesn't matter how bad it is. You reach in, you do what nobody else will do, and watch what God will do through you. Because God is looking for people who aren't too proud to do the small things and do them well. He's looking for people that will do stuff that nobody else is willing to do. Because when you're willing to do stuff that nobody else will do, you'll find yourself in positions where God can do something that you can't do. And so here's Nehemiah in the presence of the king. And the king says, why are you so downcast? Why are you struggling? And he says, I'm struggling because our city is in ruins and I can't handle it. I need it to be different. It wasn't okay. He didn't like it. It affected him. And because he allowed the situation to affect him, he was able to affect the situation. See, here's the problem with living in a city like Baltimore. We see the problems so often everywhere. We see them everywhere. You can't drive to church without seeing someone stumbling around high. You can't drive through my neighborhood without seeing prostitutes. You can't, you can't walk through this city very far without being hit face to face with the problems. And here's what's easy to do. It's easy to become cynical. It's easy to just tune it out. It's easy to drive by every homeless person that you see asking for money at a stoplight and not give them eye contact and trying not to notice them. Why? Why? 
because we see it so much that we let ourselves become jaded. We allow ourselves to become cynical. It should break us. We should say, no, this is my city. This is God's city. It breaks God's heart to see sin and evil abound. It, see, it breaks God's heart to see injustice prevail our society. It breaks God's heart to see brokenness everywhere you turn in this city. And it should break our heart too. We need a people that will say, no, this is not okay. I am not satisfied to drive to my church and walk in and be in a worship bless me club and walk out and do nothing. It is not okay. God saved you so he could send you. He didn't save you so that you could consume for the rest of your life. He saved you so that he could send you. He wants to do something through you. He wants to change this city because you're here. So don't allow yourself to get cynical. Don't allow yourself to just move on. When you see a news story that breaks your heart and makes you sick to your stomach, turn it up. Don't turn the channel. Listen. Cry. When's the last time that you cried when you read an article that someone was being sex trafficked in our city? I read an article this week. about a mom that was prostituting her daughter so she could get high. And it's not, it's not a, a, a rare occurrence. It happens all the time. Just three blocks up the street, they busted uh, a middle-aged couple that was overseeing a sex trafficking ring. We're keeping... Four young girls prisoner in a home. And selling them multiple times a day. Guys, it's not okay. And we can do something. And God has put us here to do something. Let it affect you. Let it hurt you. Let it bother you. Because if it doesn't bother you, you don't do anything. You say, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I'll tell you where you start. You get on your face before God. And you cry out. Because there is something happening in the heavens. And God is doing war on our behalf. And we're watching him move on Wednesday nights in our prayer times. And we're watching him break some things that can't be broken except through prayer. Start there. Find out how you can get on board here. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unrolling a ministry action plan to help you get involved and do more to change the city. But I want it to affect us first. So verse four, the king asked, well, 
how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, don't you love that? He gets asked by the king, how can I help you? And what's the first thing he does? He prays. God, I don't want to screw this up. This is the moment. This is the time. You put me in the presence of a king for a reason. God, please help me to say the right thing. So he asks God, and then he asks the king. If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant. You see, you can't say if you're pleased with me if you haven't been doing a good job being faithful. Because the king wouldn't be pleased. But if you've been faithful and you've been showing yourself faithful, even though you're a servant, even though you have a menial position, if you are faithful, it puts you in a place of favor. And then when the king asks, you'll have some leverage to respond. And so he does. He says, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will you be gone? When will you return? That's not the answer I was looking for. Right? After I told him how long I would be gone, and he doesn't pull any punches when he says, how long are you going to need to be gone? He tells him the whole deal. I'm going to be gone a while. I'm going to be gone a long while. After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. And then I also said to the king, while, while we're at it, king, since we're talking about what, what I need, let me talk to you about what I need. I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through the territories on my way to Judah. And please give them a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I'll need it to build, to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. So king, let me tell you what I'm going to need. I'm going to be gone for a while, so I'm going to need some vacation time. Matter of fact, let's not just call it vacation time. Let's, let's call it an extended absence. And matter of fact, I need it to be paid while I'm gone. I need you to keep paying my salary while I'm out. And, and, and not only do I need, I'd like for the king to pay for my trip. I'd like for the king not only to pay for my trip, but I'd like you to send a detachment with me to make sure that I'm safe while I go on my trip. And, and I'd like you to make sure to craft letters for every leader in every city that I go through so that they'll give me safe passage and take care of me and my people as we're going back to rebuild the city that God called us to. Now, you know what? I'm not just going to need to get there, but I'm also going to need some stuff when I get there. I'm going to need some material. So if you could give me your Home Depot credit card, I would appreciate it. Okay, here's the plastic. Make it happen. And he goes. And here's the interesting thing. He says, I need it for the temple. I need it for the walls. And I need it for my house. 
Because you have to take care of all the components. He's taking care of God's temple. He's taking care of the security of the people. And he's ensuring the safety of him and his family. You got to watch all of those areas, guys. You have to take care of each area. You've got to make sure that you're leaning in. And notice how he's got it laid out. It's God's temple first. Then God's people and then his own priorities, right? And that's the way that it works. It's in that order. But he didn't have a problem asking the king for help. He didn't feel bad one second asking for help and support. He went in. One of the things is I've been out raising funds, and I talked to my coach this week, and she said, Brad, you got to stop thinking that you're trying to raise money for your family. You're raising money for the assignment that God's called you to. God has called you to do a great work in the city. And there needs to be provision for the work that God's called you to. And I said, man, that's it. That's it. Because without a minister, there is no ministry. I heard a wise man tell me that years ago. Pastor Mike, one of the very first things he told me when we started in pastoring, he said, without a minister, there is no ministry. And so you're not going to be able to accomplish a great work in the city if there's no minister to accomplish it, right? If there's nobody to do the labor, there's no way to accomplish the work. And so Nehemiah didn't take this thing on because it seemed like it would be fun. He knew he wasn't going on a vacation. He took it on knowing that it was going to be serious. He took it on knowing that he had some tough times ahead. But God planted a vision in his heart and he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that God was calling him to a great work. And no matter who came and no matter what they said, he was not going to come down off that wall until he was finished. This is cool. This thing was significant for Nehemiah, not just for Nehemiah, but it was significant because He's building something that's going to last. He's building something not just for him. He's building something for his kids. He's building something for his grandkids. There's a legacy here that he's building. Because he's not, the walls of Jerusalem were significant for several reasons. One, it represented the status of the people. If you didn't have a city wall, you didn't have a status. It also represented the safety of the people. If you didn't have a wall, you were easily run over by whoever was coming through. Whatever horde or tribe was coming through to do damage, they were going to go in unopposed and they were going to knock you out. The other thing that it did is it, it was a, a demarcation of inheritance. It was a demarcation of possession. It was a demarcation. It was the boundary lines of what God had given to Israel. And so he's building with all of those things in mind. It was significant. It was more than just a wall. It was more than just protection. It was more than just to keep the bad guys out. This had significance and it was significant to him and it was significant to future generations. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter six. Listen to what happens next. Verse four, it says four times they sent the same message and each time I gave the same reply. So here's Sambalat and Tobiah and, 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 
and the Arab that were there constantly just going after him. And, and they're giving him problems. And so the first time he sends a messenger back, says, tell him I'm not coming down off this wall. And then he sends another messenger another time. Says, come on, come meet with us. Four different times he does this same thing, trying to get Nehemiah to come. He's applying pressure, applying pressure, applying pressure. How many of you know that there will be people in your life and certainly the enemy of your soul that will continue to apply pressure? He will beat that drum. He will go over and over and over again, trying to get you to come down off your assignment. Don't be distracted. Stay on the wall. Let me tell you something, guys. The more responsibility that you have, the more that God entrusts you with things, the more people will gossip about you. The more people will talk about you. The more people will beat you up behind your back. It's okay. One of the things I tell my kids is you don't have to attend every fight you're invited to. You don't have to go try to close the mouths of the lion. You just stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. And so listen to this, verse 5. Now we get next level. The fifth time, Sambalot's servant came with an open letter in his hand. And this is what it said. There is a rumor among the surrounding nations. And Geshem tells me it's true. Geshem told me it's true, so it must be true. Right? That you and the Jews are planning to rebel and that is why you're building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there is a king in Judah. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. Now we just ramped it up a notch, right? Now there's a formal inquiry. Now there is a process put in place where I'm not just trying to meet with you. I'm not just trying to get you off your assignment, but now I'm ratcheting it up. <clears throat> now I'm going to make up lies about you and I'll find somebody to verify my lies. How many of you know that there's always somebody that will be willing to agree to whatever gossip is floating about you? I know that none of you have ever dealt with that, but... Some folks deal with gossip. Some folks deal with people chatting behind their back. And somebody will always listen, and somebody will always repeat, and somebody will always validate the lies. The way it works. Don't come down from the wall. I don't care if there's a formal inquiry. I don't care if they're threatening to take it back to the king. I don't care if they're threatening to get you out of your position as wall builder. You didn't ask for the wall builder position to begin with. God anointed you and appointed you. He put you in a place. He said, I want you to build this wall. I want you on this assignment. And if God puts you on an assignment, he will see it through just like he promised. So don't listen to the gossip. Verse eight, I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You're making the whole thing up. 
Verse 9 says they were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. What was their point? They wanted to get him off the wall. That's always been the point, getting them off the wall, getting him off his assignment. And that's what the enemy does all the time for each one of us. He's always trying to get you off your assignment. He's, uh, he'll spread whatever lie he's got to spread. He will bring whatever discouragement he has to bring. He will bring every roadblock and obstacle that he can think of to get you off the wall because God has called you to be a wall builder. He's called you to be a city enricher. He's called you to do something that is beyond you and when you do it he will bless it that's the way it works can I just show you one more thing that I think is cool turn to Matthew chapter 27 I asked you if I could do it but I'm going to do it anyway you knew that though Matthew 27 Let's start reading in verse 38. It says, two revolutionaries were crucified with him. One on his right and one on his left. The people shouted as they passed by, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they were yelling at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. Mm, 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 mm. That almost sounds like it connects, doesn't it? The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the revolutionaries who were crucified with him ridiculed him in the same way. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not come down? If there's anybody in history that had the power to come down, it was Jesus. And he chose to stay up. And he chose to stay on assignment. And he chose to do the hard thing. And he chose to endure the pain. And he chose to endure the ridicule. And he chose to walk through the challenges. Why? Because God put him on an assignment. And that assignment changed everything. And I believe that God put you on the wall in this city. To be the bridge to the cross for the people in our city that are literally dying and going to hell. It's interesting that the church doesn't talk about hell very much anymore. See, because there, there became this reputation with the church that the church was hell, fire, and brimstone. They preach hell, fire, and brimstone. I think it's okay. If we're also preaching salvation through the cross of Christ and eternal life. Because there is a real hell. And there's a real devil. And that devil is really interested in you going to hell for all eternity. And it's hot and it's dark and it's painful and it's forever. 
And if you do not proclaim Jesus as your Lord and follow him, that is where you go. And it's interesting because in the church, you're not supposed to say that anymore because it's too exclusive and it's too arrogant and it's too this and it's too that and it's too harsh. It is harsh. But the fact that it's harsh doesn't make it less true. And the reality is there is an alternative. And there is a loving God who says, I don't want any of you to go there. And I'll make a way so that you don't have to go there. And I'll make it an easy way. And there are people all over the world that say, well, it's just so arrogant that you would say there's only one way to get to heaven. Couldn't you also say that it's really simple? Couldn't you also say that it's much less confusing? Couldn't you also say that it's much more kind? Because Islam says that you have to work. And even if you work hard, you still may not get there. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You come and take on my burden and you get to follow me. Buddhism says that there is no sin, there is no wrong, there is nothing. Matter of fact, there's no God, there's no creation. There is no creator, there's nothing. It's just you exist. You're going to die, come back as a bug if you did things wrong in your life, and you're going to come back as a good person if you did things right. And you just keep ascending. Where is the hope? See, Jesus' exclusive claims put him in a very special category. And people will argue that it's not true because it's arrogant. Can I tell you something? Just in, in logic, if you've taken logic class or you've taken an apologetics class or whatever, this is called an argument ad hominem, okay? And the idea is that if you can't argue something based on its merit, if your argument doesn't have any weight and it's not logical, then you can attack the person's character that you disagree with and that will invalidate their argument. So let's say that Isaac Newton was arrogant when he declared the law of gravity. Does that mean that the law of gravity is untrue? What if you really hated Isaac Newton? You're like, that guy is a jerk. I hope he gets hit by a bus. It still does not mean that the law of gravity is not true. Just because you think someone is arrogant that says Jesus is the only way to heaven does not make it less true. You can disagree with the person. You can be mad at the person. You can argue all you want. It doesn't make it less true. I believe that the most gracious thing that anyone ever could have done was say, I'm going to leave heaven. I'm going to step off of my throne. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to become human. I'm going to go through all the things that you go through. I'm going to endure pain. I'm going to go through puberty. You know, Jesus loves you that he did that, right? Jesus was an awkward teenage boy. 
whose feet were bigger than his body. He probably had zits and everything else. He went through all the temptations that come with adolescence and he rose above it. He endured all the challenges of a man. He endured all of the gossip and the persecution and the hatred and the ridicule. And he still rose above it all. He lived sinlessly. How much more loving can you be? And then he agonized in preparation to die on a cross. He took the punishment for sin that each one of us deserves, even though he deserved none of it. And he said, now, because I've absorbed the punishment, I get to apply it because I'm innocent. So now I can apply the grace wherever I want because I didn't do anything wrong. And so the injustice of the punishment that Jesus took qualified him to apply grace to you who deserves punishment. Can you think of anything more loving, more kind? How in the world can anyone say that it's arrogant to apply that kind of love? What a ridiculous, narrow-minded assertion. The fact that Jesus made it so simple, he said, yes, 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 you can come. You can have eternal life. Just come, come on, come. Come. And so as we process what our assignment is here in Baltimore, is to carry this hope to every single one of the 630,000 residents of Baltimore. And I will not rest until everyone has had a choice to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, I'm telling you right now, I believe with all of my heart that Baltimore, Maryland will be the greatest turnaround city in America. There's a lot to turn around. And if we try to do it in our own strength, we are doomed to fail. But in the power of the cross of Christ. In the power of the cross of Christ, we have victory. I want to invite you. Some of you may never have heard a message that clear about the cross and about what it means for you and about the fact that you have the opportunity to confess Jesus, ask him to forgive your sins, and he will give you grace and you will be invited into the family of God. If you want that this morning, and you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to, to be the one that you focus your attention on and be the one that you submit yourself to if you've never done that before and you want to do it today, I'm telling you, it is that simple. You say, yes, Lord. I want you. I need you. Please forgive me. I'm so tired of my life looking the way it does. I want to be changed. If that's you today, I want you to raise your hand because I want to pray for you. 
Anybody here, you, you want God to do this. You've never done it before. All right. Amen. Anybody else? All right. Anyone else? Amen. Amen. Here's what I want us to do. I want everybody to stand up. If there was somebody around you that lifted their hand, would you just put a hand on their shoulder real fast and just, we're going to pray. If you're, if you're following Jesus, you're in love with Jesus, I just want you to pray. Father God, right now, we profess our faith in you. Lord, I do not want anyone to perish. I do not want anyone to be on the wrong side of eternity. God, I pray that you would empower each person that had the boldness today to lift their hand and say, yes, today is my day. I will follow Jesus. God, I pray that you would forgive them right where they are. As we're praying, you just ask God to forgive you of your sins. Right now, just say, God, please forgive me. I'm so sorry for the mess I've made of things. Please transform me. God, I ask that you would hear their prayers. I pray that you would transform their heart. I pray that you would bring them to a new level of repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. The whole church said, amen, amen. I believe that God has transformed some hearts. Come on, let's give him a clap of praise this morning. Do you know so far this year, we've seen around 20 people make decisions to follow Christ? Do you know that in the Assemblies of God, more than half the churches didn't see a single convert? Not one person. But I believe that God is doing something and he's changing lives and he's doing it now. Amen? Amen. All right, God bless you guys. You can-